are necessary. What All right, changes guys. may be necessary to get the, the election integrity committee so we by getting access to in Arizona is live now. Signatures, along with 5.3 corresponding voter registration files. Through that, we were able to learn a lot about the process, how it works, and how signature verification works. And that, we, and that was from what year, 2020 or 2022? So the voter ballot envelopes were from 2020, and the registrations were historical files all the way through March of 2021. Okay, thanks. Yes, and so we also studied the current regulations, the policy and procedure manual put forth by the Secretary of State and the current legislation involving signature verification. So signature verification is a process by which you take the voter uh, ballot envelope and compare it to the affidavit in order to determine whether it's a legitimate vote. So there are two areas that we looked at that we want to share with you today. The first one is the signature verification of 2020 and how that relates to 2022. 420,987 ballot envelopes failed signature verification in the 2020 election. The system was never repaired, and because of that, those same issues that caused the massive amount of failures was still in existence in the 2020 election. In the 2022? In the 2022 election, which has left our system still vulnerable. The other area I want to cover is the tabulator machines. We received, just a few weeks ago, January of 2023, the system log files from the tabulators that were used in Maricopa County on election day, along with the redacted CVR records. Through an analysis, we were able to determine that a quarter of a million ballot feeds misread by those tabulators. There are approximately two tabulators in every polling center, which means there were 446 tabulators with a quarter of a million voter attempt failures. So when you say misread, you, you mean the ballot was put into the machine and then kicked back out? That is correct. Okay. So one more clarification in my mind. So if one person, say for example, put his ballot into the tabulator and it spit back out and then he reattempted it multiple times, we don't that number doesn't represent a number of people or a number of attempts, just the overall set of data points of how many times the machines kicked back a ballot. Madam Chair, that is correct. Madam the ballot Chair, feeds. What happens to those ballots? They're not forgotten and lost, right? I mean, they go to a process to get counted eventually? Go ahead and finish and then answer that question. Sure. So the, the ballot feeds go, go through me and then address Senator oh. Mendez. Um, Madam Chair, Senator Mendez. So what happens to those ballots is not necessarily something that we have analyzed. The ballot will attempt to be read by the tabulator and then be sent from there to potentially MTAC or Central Count at that time it may be adjudicated it may be counted we didn't follow the the life cycle of the ballot we're simply pointing out the fact that these tabulators failed at 235 times 
the election assistance commission's regulated failure rates. Ma Madam Chair, but so we're all acknowledging there is a process to take care of this potential situation? Uh, my understanding is we don't know what happens to the ballot because of this. Is that correct? Madam Chair, yes. There is no record that generates to tell us how that ballot or if that ballot was appropriately tabulated on site. So when you have this many ballots brought into question and this many ballots that are not being adequately fed in and tabulated on site, it creates um, a lot of question and doubt and voter confidence decreases. Okay, proceed. Before we leave that point, Madam Chair, yes. Madam Chair, uh, Ms. Bush, who came up with the, could you go back one slide? Who determined the, the number 420,987 from the 2020 election? Was that your organization that determined there were that number of failed signatures, or was that the number reported by all of the counties in, in Arizona? So, Madam Chair, Senator Bennett, that number is based on a, a, um, a review of a quarter of the 1.9 million envelopes from the 2020 election. We used 150 trained workers that studied the Secretary of State manual and followed those guidelines. And then they analyzed each voter record individually. Once we got the statistics for that first 25% or 400,000 ballots, then it was extrapolated to determine the final number. Those are Maricopa County. And that is just Maricopa County. Yeah, that's the point I was going to make, Madam Chair, is I think Maricopa County alone uh, had 2,089,563 ballots in 2020, and one, about 1 1.9 million of them were by mail. And so your group analyzed about 25% of those 1.9 million in Maricopa County, came up with a percentage that you considered to have failed signature verification, then you extrapolated to get to the 420,000. Madam Chair, Senator Bennett, that is correct. Thank you. Okay, proceed. So the first thing we did was decided to analyze the time it takes to actually do this adequately in order to determine whether or not some of these failures exist because the counties are understaffed or under-resourced and don't have the adequate ability to actually verify these signatures with quality. So we took the number of mail-in ballots in the 2022 general election that were received, which was approximately 1.3 million, and the number of workstations dedicated in Maricopa County to mail-in ballot signature verification at the first level. There's 28 workstations and two rooms, and 25 of those computers are fully dedicated to signature verification. Based on the shifts they work and the days that they were actually processing and verifying signatures, we used a mathematical equation to determine, just based on the final 298,000 that came in on election day, they used two and a half days or two and a half shifts to verify those signatures. And if you break that down by the man hours used, the number of signature verifiers and the number of stations available, then 
they would need to verify a signature every eight seconds. We have used 150 trained workers who have been doing this since September and put in 470 combined work hours into signature verification and the average time it takes to adequately review a record is 30 to 45 seconds. Also, when we take the additional 1,013,734 and divide that over the 15 days necessary, they would need to maintain a consistent pace and have every computer field and would have to verify a signature one every 13 seconds. The math just doesn't add up to giving the county what they need to adequately do this job. Madam Chair, um, and Ms. Is it okay? Okay, quickly, go. Okay. Uh, just having a question about the signature verification process. So we're, uh, the 298,000 signatures that you're starting from, those are the ones that were first kicked back from the computers? Is that for, for no, further? That's a different issue. Two different issues. Oh, from the? Yeah, we're, we're talking two right. issues no, today. No, no. Understood the tabulation okay. is one thing. This is signature ver right. verification. Right. Um, okay, but uh, okay. So then, my 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 question then is that it's my so your the numbers here, the calculations here are for the workstations. Um, is it possible there's verification done in alternate ways? For example, um, I believe Maricopa County, uh, you know, doesn't conducts signature verification not just at the workstations, but also certified elections officials can also do the to that signature verification. Um, Madam Chair and Senator, I'm so sorry, um, Sunderson? Sunderation. Sunderation. Like, like, like I apologize. Like Sunderation. 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 I apologize. So, yes, there are managerial level employees that conduct signature verification at other workstations. Three of those are included in the 28. The additional ones are done in their offices or other areas, but those are second level and third level review. Those are full-time manager employees that do not conduct first level review. Thank you, proceed. I, I have a question, Madam Chair. Go ahead. Um, Madam Chair, Shelby, when you say a day, was that an eight-hour shift or longer? Madam Chair, Senator Bennett, it's a actually a 10.5-hour day. They have two shifts. One is eight-hour and one is four hours long. But we also took away the one-hour lunch break that was reported by all of the employees and the 15-minute breaks. And the 10 to 15 minutes, they said, it took to shift change, okay. which left us with quality work hours of 10 and, ten a, half and a half per day. 10 and a half hours in per the two and a half days. Yes, sir. Thank you, Madam Chair. Go ahead. So the next slide you will see is an exhibit in your packet. I refer to that as exhibit three. This is just an overall assessment of our findings when we evaluated our 380,976 ballots at the beginning of this process. And this will just give you a breakdown of the various types of issues that we located, the violations that we found, the statute it violates, and the number. I will go into each of these in further detail, but I want to give you this chart for reference. Thank you. 
So the first violation we found was blank envelopes. The statute is very clear that a blank envelope has no ability to be cured. A signature must be rendered on that envelope by 7 p.m. on election day. However, we found 1,870 ballots that were cured against this particular statute. The first example you'll see here, it's blank with no signature. It also does not include a phone number. Not only was this ballot cured and stamped verified without a signature, it was done so in a five-day curing period, which was 11-8, five days after the statutory expiration. The next one was received on election day, November. Well, to, your, to that point, Madam Chair. Go ahead. Ms. B uh, Ms. Bush, you're saying that you believe it was cured after the five-day period? Madam Chair, uh, Senator Bennett, yes, we have the metadata for these envelopes that tell us the date of any adaptations, changes, or curing. It will give us the date and time that, uh, that that envelope was scanned back into the system as repaired or cured. And this one was metadata stamped as being cured on November 8th. And the election, Madam Chair, Senator, uh, Ms. Bush, election was on what date? November 3rd. Uh, Madam Chair, I believe the statute allows for five working days, and that excludes the Saturday, Sunday, and in this election in 2022, Monday was a holiday. So did you account for the business days, five days? Because I, I believe that the election was on Tuesday. They had Wednesday, Thursday, Friday would have been the third day. Saturday, Sunday, and a holiday on Monday would not be included, and therefore Tuesday and Wednesday of the following week would have been allowed. So I thought that went to like November 10th or something. Uh, Madam Chair, Senator Bennett, the difference in this, and, and yes, you're absolutely correct, November 8th was well within the curing period. Right. The problem with this is blank envelopes are clearly stated in statute and also in the policy and procedure manual to not be subjected to a five-day curing period. They must be resolved by 7 p.m. on election day. Okay, I, that I agree with, but um, I thought you were saying that you found some of these ballots cured on November 8th, which was not within the five-day period. What, what I think you're really saying is that in the case of unsigned signature boxes on envelopes if it's unsigned as of 7 p.m on election night it's not curable in the first place madam chair senator bennett that is correct okay, thank, thank you. you thank you for that clarification yep so as you'll see there's a few more examples of the same scenario madam chair quick question go ahead thank you madam madam chair and uh mrs bush um if there's no phone number on there, how does the county contact the voter to tell them to come in and, and verify? So Madam Chair, Senator Borelli, normally the signature verification team would then need to lend to the voter record or the voter file, which would be their most recent voter registration record to pull those numbers. The unfortunate thing that we have found during this audit is that we actually have some accounts. None of those registrations have phone numbers. We also have reports from some of the signature verification team that worked in 2022 who said they had no numbers accessible to them when they were curing ballots. 
So it, it makes it more difficult, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the voter does not have a phone number available to the elections department. Go ahead. So again, this is just a third example of that same scenario. This ballot was received on November 3rd by the elections department and then was given a curing period and cured without a signature, which is again in violation of statute. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, so uh, Madam Chair and Mrs. Bush, are we saying there's no other scenario where something like this would have happened? Madam Chair, Senator Mendez, uh, there is no reasonable explanation for it that falls within the law and statutes currently in the so state like of Arizona. Madam Chair, Mrs. Bush, so somebody wouldn't have been mistakenly signed on a different part that just isn't included in this picture, and then that would have been resolved? Madam Chair, Senator Mendez, I suppose if the voter decided to sign on the other side of the envelope or somewhere in a tiny area with writing, that is a scenario that is possible, but the likelihood, in my opinion, that that could happen uh, almost 2,000 times, it doesn't appear to be likely. We have seen instances where voters will sign on the phone number line or even sign underneath or above the box, but for them to sign in an area outside of this scope that is available to the elections for auditing seems very unlikely. And if that scenario is happening this many times, you may want to look into it as a Senate body to, to actually quantify that area in scanning. Go ahead, Ms. Bush. So the next violation we found was signatures other than the voter. So these are not examples that you would deal with if you see a signature that just doesn't match. We can't clearly state that that's someone other than the voter. But in this first scenario, if you look at this example, this is a voter by the name of Manuel who has somebody other than Manuel signing his ballot. Now in this particular case, this is a household member who signed the ballot uh, probably accidentally. We can say maybe it's a husband and wife who signed ballots for one another. The problem with this scenario is that what we noticed was happening is the county was accepting these ballots as is and generating labels that they were placing over the name and voter information of the ballot envelope and changing it to match the signature, therefore altering that ballot record, that ballot affidavit envelope record, and it's also inconsistent with the writing on the affidavit that no one other than the voter themselves shall sign the envelope. Ma it Ma Madam Chair, to the point. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Madam Chair and, and Mrs. Bush, um, I, I want to go back to the, to the example where you were showing places where they didn't sign. And, and I feel it was a little ingenuous to just say, like, there's a problem because we found so many that, that don't have signatures. But there's a, uh, I'm, I'm talking with other people, and there's lots of examples why people wouldn't have a signature there. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a fire. Uh, but uh, I've personally uh, serviced voters who can't sign for lots of different reasons. We'll get to that example. Let her finish the briefing. Thank you. Okay, here is another example. This is actually the counterpart to the previous ballot. This is uh, the signer of the first ballot's ballot envelope signed by the voter who should have signed the other envelope. So this is clearly two household members that they modified the envelope to adapt for these two voters and allowed those ballots to be counted. 
A question. Uh, putting a label on an affidavit envelope, uh, that has to be clearly a violation of statute, is it not? I mean, how does the county get to do that? Madam Chair, yes, we saw this in magnitude. I believe, if I can tell you, we have located in, in this quarter of a total overall assessment review 542 scenarios where this exists. And they print white mailing style labels with a typeset font and they put it over the top of the barcode and the voter information for the voter it belongs to and adapt it and modify it. And in my opinion, it appears to be a violation of law because it's alteration of an election ballot and also a, a ballot affidavit being signed by the wrong voter. Thank you. Ms. Madam Chair, you said it's a modification of the ballot. You meant the, the ballot, ballot envelope. envelope. Okay, thank yes. you. Now here's an additional example of somebody signing other than the voter. We also found many times this happened where we could not find any correlation to it being a household member. And there were no modifications made to the ballot envelope and the vote was counted against the original voter. And you can see in this scenario, uh, Heather is the ballot affidavit owner. And if you look to the right, that is her voter record signature. However, the signature on that ballot envelope was passed through the system in first round without any challenge or curing process. Here's another example of a similar scenario where the name of the voter is Ida, and I guarantee you she does not have a middle name of Margaret, but Margaret signed the ballot envelope, and this passed through in round one first level verification with no challenge or curing. Now to Senator Mendez's concerns about voters who cannot sign their envelopes, the state of Arizona has this beautiful thing called the Special Elections Board. It's dictated under ARS 16, 547 and 549. This is a special election board that's designed by the state of Arizona that each county has to enact and it provides assistance to those voters who need help. They maybe can't sign the envelope or they've had a stroke. There's various reasons, but most of the time it's because they need assistance filling out their ballot or signing their name. And that is the Special Elections Board or SEB Board. We found 2,104 additional to the blanks that are potential SEBs. The problem is, is it states in statute that it needs to be signed off by an SCB witness and dated. And we found 2,104 of these scenarios we believe are SCB, but there's no way to validate them. In this slide, you'll see what we believe to be a correct SCB ballot. There's two side by side. And if you'll without initials or dates, it's obvious that this voter got quality and appropriate assistance. If you look to the right, the same scenario is true. System working at its finest. 
But what we found in these over 2,000 ballots were scenarios such as this, where there's an X mark in place of a signature with a clear signature voter record. However, nowhere is the signature countersigned or documented as being witnessed or approved by Special Elections Board. Madam Chair. Go ahead. Uh, qu quick question. So uh, again, on this slide, we see that blacked out section, and I wonder uh, we we had there was a a couple of slides before where there were the blacked out sections. Um, I'm wondering if if the relevant information that might help answer those questions is is under the blacked out section that's just being hidden to you know protect personal identifying information. Madam Chair, Senator, to answer that question, that black box is there to cover the phone number. We do not want this presentation going public and any voters to be unduly. Um, harassed at the pleasure of the chairman I'm sure there would be a way we could arrange for you to view this unredacted as a senator to confirm what's under that box so just to clarify you you redacted that area yourself it didn't arrive to you read it madam chair senator yes here's an additional example of an SCB ballot uh, this one states unable to sign due to disability the interesting thing about this one is, again, it has no telephone number. There's no SCB countersigning or witnessing occurring on it. And it went through a curing process. And typically, SCB ballots don't need to go through a curing process because the, the need for a signature is waived. So we have no way of knowing whether a relative or somebody unbeknownst to the voter wrote this information and it passed through the system. Another violation we found is duplicate voters. As all of you are aware, it is illegal to vote more than once in a single election. And as a matter of fact, we have a state statute that points out that it is a class five felony to do so. We have already identified provably 128 scenarios of duplicate voters. And these voters were turned over to the attorney general's office. Here's one scenario where a voter voted on October 21st of 2020 and again on October 30th of 2020. Another scenario where you can see two different dates and the handwriting of the phone numbers are similar. I left a portion of that phone number unredacted just so you guys could see that it is consistent. Here's Madam another Chair. example. Madam Chair. Yes. Uh, Ms. Bush, did you validate somehow that two votes were counted for this one person? Um, or that one of them was rejected after the other one was counted? Madam Chair, Senator Bennett. Yes, we did verify that through the data itself. Some of these duplicate voters actually had more than one voter ID, which is how it originally had slipped through the system. But they were the same voter, and we verified that through private um, redacted information. And so we know for a fact both of those private, counted. Madam Chair, uh, what's, Shelby, what's private redacted information? You verified that they counted two votes for one person through private redacted information. What does um, that mean? 
Madam Chair. Chair, Senator Bennett, what I'm meaning to say is we were able to confirm that both of these voters are in fact the exact same voter by looking at PII information that we have access to, such as last for social, driver's license number, and dates of birth. Madam Chair. Well, ma Madam Chair, um, are you talking about finding two voter registration documents for the same in individual that has the same information on both of them? Is that what you're referring to? Madam Chair, Senator Bennett, we found both of these, both of these ballot envelopes had a tabulation count for them. Both ballots were accepted by the elections department and tabulated into the system. Thank you. Madam Chair, question. Go ahead. Uh, Shelby. Shelby, I have a question for you. Um, if these ballots went through the cure process, do we know that if the voters were contacted to cure uh, two votes? Madam Chair, Senator Mendez, I don't believe no, you can cure Senator two Hernandez. votes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't believe you can cure two votes. The law makes it clear that you can only vote once in an election. So in that scenario, Madam Chair, follow up? Go ahead. So in that scenario, if the voter was contacted to discuss this, if they re received two votes, what is the process that happens there? Madam Chair and Senator Hernandez, I'm not sure that that should be a scenario. Uh, I don't think there's a policy in place for allowing two votes to count. It is actually uh, indicated that if the county becomes aware of a secondary vote, they are supposed to report it to authorities, not to the voter themselves. Okay, that's what I was looking for, thank you. Go ahead. So here's a few more examples of that same scenario. So here's an additional violation. Um, in addition to having issues with the actual ballot envelopes, we noticed some patterns that were a little bit concerning that we wanted to bring to your attention in regards to the actual registration itself. One of them is unreasonably mismatched voter registrations or wrong names on the voter registrations. We found 36,034 records so far in the voter registration files that have clearly different names, missing names, or inappropriate information connected to those files. We believe some of this is due to the digital signature implants from the Service Arizona system. Here's one example where the signature on the ballot envelope belongs to that voter, and that is a good countable ballot. However, the voter record has a voter registration with that same voter's private information and all of their current details, only with the signature of a completely different voter inserted onto that registration file. Here's a similar scenario where the voter on the ballot is absolutely legitimate and the signature is valid. However, there is a voter of a completely different, um, one is female and one is male, who signed one of the voter registrations. And we did confirm that those voter registrations actually contain the information of the voter and should have been signed by the voter. Go ahead, yes, Senator. Madam Chair. And, uh, can you go back to the previous slide? Yes, ma Madam Chair, uh, Ms. Bush. So when you went to the voter registration form, the information on the voter registration form had the information of the individual that signed the affidavit, no. but just the signature is completely 
cut and pasted from what? Madam Chair, Senator Borelli, yes. So just for the sake of this, we will call voter the voter um, Doug Ship for DS. Okay, Doug Ship is on that voter registration form along with the appropriate phone numbers, addresses, dates of birth, and that is by all due rights his voter registration. However, the signature box has a signature of Jeff S instead of DS. So, so Madam Chair, Ms. Bush, so what you're literally saying is obviously when they were doing the sick verify, they never even noticed that. I let it go through. Madam Chair, Senator Brelli, that is correct. Thank you. Here's another scenario and another scenario. And if you could see the unredacted portions, I think it would be helpful to you. But unfortunately, we just we have to protect voters, so we can't do that. But both of these voter signatures are independent, and the signature on that voter registration does not belong to the voter whose registration it is. Another violation we found was illegible and unusable references. We, saw, we found scenarios where addresses were updated, voter affiliation was updated, and various things were changed in the system, sometimes with no signature whatsoever on that voter registration file. We also saw significant flaws in the actual Service Arizona system itself. Because of the digitizer pads, sometimes these signatures are so microscopic you can't see them, and sometimes they're so depixelated that it becomes just an ink blotch that you cannot read. We found 4,433 of these so far that we believe to be completely unusable. The other footnote I want to add is that at first level verification, the system that's set up at Maricopa County does not provide for zooming features. What you are going to see is actually a zoomed feature, but what they see at first level verification is the microscopic version. So here's the first illegible or unusable signature. As you can see, that signature is very, very small at the bottom. And because of the thickness of the digitizer, it's almost impossible to make out any fine details. That is zoomed in in comparison to what they would see in SigVerify. Here's an example of a voter registration that was processed that had no signature overlaid on it whatsoever. Madam Chair. Go ahead. Go ahead, Senator. Ms. Shelby. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Ms. Shelby, so for some of these uh, that you've identified here, um, you're, you're finding the kind of illegible, unusable signatures. My understanding of the, of the then cure process is counties will attempt to contact the voter. Voters have the opportunity to update their signatures that are then on file to be able to confirm. Does your analysis include those updated signatures? And Madam Chair, Senator, so these are some of the most recent signatures that are on file. Many of these are the most recent. The, the problem with the Service Arizona voter registrations, which is what we're predominantly dealing with, is they do not have a requirement for an updated signature. You can go into Service Arizona and change your voter registration 150 times over a course of 35 years, and the same signature will carry over from form to form 
to form, and oftentimes there are no other signature references available to you. We've even seen this scenario in cases where women get married and change their last name, and they change their name with the DMV, but the old signature from 10 years prior with their maiden name is the signature carried over into the file. This is a significant issue that I hope the Senate will address. So another violation we found is signatures on the registrations are all different. So we understand that people's signatures change over a course of time, and sometimes that's very natural. But some of the examples we found were extraordinarily drastic, and I will show you what that looks like. So we found 48,117 voter records where we could not reconcile with any reasonable amount of perspective a signature similar similar to the other, and we do use the basic 12-point verification provided by the Secretary of State. So here's an example, if you look to the right, there's two voter registration records on file for this particular voter. Neither of those signatures are even close to one another, and the ballot envelope that was approved in the first level without curing doesn't match either one of them. If the ballot, the ballot registration forms or the voter registration forms are this disconnected from one another, it makes signature verification an even more difficult task. Here's another scenario where you have three voter registration signatures on file for one voter. Each of them are very different from one another and the ballot envelope signature is similar to one of the three signatures, but is still not exact. So this makes the voter registration file a little bit, dif a little bit difficult to decipher. Here's another scenario where you have very drastically different looking signatures. And again, we recognize that signatures change over a course of time, sometimes people shorthand, but there are certain tales as taught by the Secretary of State that you look for, such as left-leaning slants, right-leaning slants, where you start your pen, where you stop your pen. And those are the type of things that we really look for when we're identifying whether or not we consider it a match or a mismatch. Here's another example that includes three reference signatures. The first reference signature appears to be very similar to the second, but the third reference signature is extraordinarily different, and none of those representatives match the actual ballot envelope. Another scenario we found is signatures that do not match on election day. However, they were approved and sent through the system, and then later, a new registration was introduced that matches the signature from the ballot envelope. Here's an example. This person registered to vote on July 4th of 2020, just months before the election. The signature they used on the digital pad was very drastically different than the ballot they approved in November of 2020. However, on February 3rd of 2021, the digital signature was updated to a signature matching the ballot envelope. Here's another identical scenario where the signature on 521 of 2020 is drastically different from the ballot signature envelope that was passed through the system in 2020, but only later on February 3rd of 2021 was a new digital signature introduced that matched that voter's signature. Madam Chair. 
Go ahead. Michelle, might, might that actually be an example of what we were just talking about is where the county contacts the voter to update their signature in order to match that and cure that ballot? Madam Chair, Senator, this may be one of those scenarios we did discover, and I will get into it in the next slide, some unusual patterns with this situation. The other thing is, is these signatures are coming in through Service Arizona, which is a Department of Motor Vehicles style registration. In order to update your signature, you would have to physically go to the DMV, and I would imagine if they were contacted by the Elections Department, they would choose to update their voter registration through the Elections Department and not the Motor Vehicle Department. But I cannot make those assumptions. So with this pattern, we saw some recognizable um, issues. We found very large numbers of new registrations being pushed into the system on January 28th, February 3rd, and February 8th that all meet the previous criteria of a signature update. 783 new registration changes meeting that criteria we found in February 3rd alone, along with hundreds on those other two dates. And uh, we have become aware of a third-party URL access granted by the Secretary of State to allow some of these larger nonprofit organizations to register people to vote through the Service Arizona website. We will provide more information to that as, as it develops, so I will look forward to reporting more on that. But due to the fact that these are all digital signatures and appear to have no additional registration change, it does, in my opinion, raise some concern for additional looks. These are all scenarios where there was no address change, no phone number change, no party affiliation change. They were all just consistent with the signature update. Another violation that we found was signatures that failed to meet Secretary of State standards. Now, these signatures by Secretary of State standards, in order to fall into this category, we tried to make sure that they were missing um, at least 50% of the points of match to call in this category. And we found 47,366 of this scenario. Here's one example. You could tell stylistically that these signatures could be similar. However, they failed 10 out of 12 points of signature verification. So that would be one failing standards. Here's another scenario. This is potentially the same signer, and it's not what we would consider an egregious or something we would, we would look at and say this could be a forgery. However, it fails multiple points of signature verification based on its lien, where the pen starts and stops, and various pen lift situations and letter sizing. Here's a third example, which is a little bit more drastically different. It's also what we would consider a Secretary of State failure, not necessarily egregious, where the signatures have some slight lean similarities, but stylistically it's entirely different. But what was most concerning to us overall was that 10% of the signatures reviewed fall into what we consider an egregious category. We trained all of the workers to make an attempt to pass a ballot, not to look for a reason to not pass a ballot. Everyone that fell into this egregious category, we believe, 
uh, has zero capability of meeting any of the Secretary of State standards. Here's one example of that. This is also representative of a pattern that we are processing and still investigating, and it is where there are two S's used in the signature box in place of a valid signature, oftentimes not even with S being part of the name. In this particular case, I believe there is an S in the first name. I'm going to flip through these just one at a time slowly for you to view. Now, Madam Chair, I would like to refer to some of the declarations of the 2022 signature verification workers that we interviewed. All of these statements I've provided to you in exhibit form, and they are uh, sworn declarations. Okay, go through those quickly if you would. So the first one I'd like to cite is exhibit one Declaration of Andrew Myers, and that would be page four, paragraph 21. In my room, we had a whiteboard that Michelle would update with numbers of ballots to be verified that day. Throughout the day, Michelle would update the progress that people were making in verifying signatures. The math never added up. Typically, we were processing about 60,000 signatures a day. I would hear that people were rejecting 20 to 30 percent, which means I would expect to see 12,000 to 15,000 ballots in my pile for curing the next day. However, I would consistently see every morning only about 1,000 envelopes to be cured. We typically saw about one-tenth of the rejected ballots we were told we would see. In Andy's declaration, he notes that the rejection rates were consistent with our findings at 20 to 30 percent. But he also noted that the math just didn't seem to add up. He was only seeing 1,000 envelopes per day at that next level of the curing process for review, even though the math said he should have received 12,000 or more the following day. Now, Madam Chair and Distinguished Committee, I would like to refer you to Exhibit 2, the Declaration of Jacqueline Onekite. On page 2, paragraph 11 through 13. At times when the workload was high, Level 2 and 3 managers sent some of their work, which was to review our Level 1 work, back to Level 1 again to re-review the work we had already done. There were observers watching the review of level one, but there were not any observers watching all of the review levels two and three. Sometimes the observers were able to watch some of the work of Andrew, a level two manager, but were not able to observe any of the work of the other level two managers, Jeff and William. After the above signature review, the approved signature ballots were counted and the rejected signature ballots were sent into a process whereby the ballots could be cured. 
In this declaration, Jacqueline points out that not only were level one review workers being tasked with reviewing other level one reviewers' work, but according to Andrew's declaration on page two, paragraph nine, the level one workers were being asked to re-review and override the decisions made of level two and three workers that rejected ballots. They were more skilled and had more access to voter registration files. And when those ballots were rejected, instead of sending them into curing, as would be the process, they would send them back to a temporary unskilled uh, not as well-trained employee to try and see if they could get it to pass. Madam Chair, to this point. Go ahead. Thank you. Madam Chair, Mrs. Bush, uh, I guess for some context, could I, could, I, could I get some context on these on these statements? Are these uh, statements from like court proceedings? Are they legal documents? Or is it just a conversation you had with a person? Madam Chair, Senator Mendez, uh, both. So these declarations that have been provided to you were actually taken by an attorney. It was an independent interview that um, I personally did not have anything to do with. However, our team was able to sit down based off this declaration and interview each of these workers. All of them were employed by Maricopa County Elections Department. Uh, two of them worked in both managerial level and curing, and one of them was a first level employee of Maricopa County for multiple election cycles. Uh, could you sort of Explain it in plain language, 20 words or less, what it means of what these affidavits are stating for the rest of us untrained in these matters. Absolutely. So what these affidavits are basically stating is they're confirming the fact that there is no way possible that the county could adequately review the number of ballots that they claim to review in the time provided. It also indicates that there is a, a um, intentional uh, desire to have the vote count, so therefore uh, the system is set up to lean towards trying to uh, pass a ballot through at all costs, even if that doesn't necessarily mean that the ballot is legitimate. Madam Chair, to this point, is, uh, is there like an attorney that signed off on this? Or, I mean, are we, are we missing, I feel like we're missing a lot of context. I mean, without any kind of like, I mean, even if it, uh, <laughs> they were, what, what signed off on what? Not a moron, dude. I mean, otherwise, this what is, is just What is wrong with these fucking people, man? Madam Chair and Senator, these are actually declarations made under perjury and penalty, and they were taken by, approved by, signed off by the employee themselves, but it was done under the supervision of an attorney, Attorney Kerr Olson, who interviewed these particular employees in relation to legal cause. Thank you. Proceed. So finally, uh, the last thing I want to touch on, on the signature verification, is that we provided our data to a qualified analyst, Dr. Walter Dougherty. He is the senior lecturer emeritus in the Department of Computer Sciences and Engineering at Texas A&M, and a consultant for multiple national and international organizations, including maintaining government contracts with departments such as the Department of Texas Agriculture, to uh, the U.S. Border and Customs. He took the declarations that we received from these various workers along with all of the analytic data we provided him that we've presented to you today. And after analyzing the review by our team and the declarations of those verification 
workers, he determined with what he believes to be 99.999% confidence level that there were approximately 290,644 failed signatures that would have been introduced into the 2022 election because we failed to repair the broken system. That is uh, all listed on Exhibit 4 by the declaration of Dr. Walter Dougherty and he will walk through the scientific math that he used uh, that is within industry standard. Okay, before uh, I approve uh, Dr. Doherty to uh, augment your remarks, I want to confirm for the record uh, that what you have stated is I would like you to swear uh, that uh, you've stated everything true to the best of your knowledge and that you uh, stand by that as a legal truth. Am I saying it right? under penalty and perjury. And Gunny here was making sure I covered my bases here. So uh, raise your right hand and swear for me, please. Madam Chair and Senators, I swear that all that I'm saying is to the, to the absolute truth to the best of my ability and understanding. Okay, very Ma well. Madam Chair, to that point, this is not a court of law, so. What was the point of that? The point of that is to make absolutely sure in the record that uh, we have covered all bases. And uh, that's my prerogative as the chair. Uh, they don't care about affidavits either. Ask, Madam Chair, may I ask more questions or are you dismissing her? I have uh, an augmented uh, subject matter expert who I would like to call to the microphone, Dr. Doherty. Madam Chair. Dr. Doherty, if you would state your name and that uh, you swear that you are conveying the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. My name is Walter Doherty, and I swear that what I'm about to present is true to the best of my knowledge and ability. Thank you, sir. Proceed. And if you would, for our uh, colleagues here, uh, explain your role and uh, a quick uh, reference to your background as it pertains to your role. Uh, yes, could I ask you to switch the jump drives to mine? Um, my education is at Oklahoma Christian University and at Harvard where I received master's and doctor's degrees. I taught computer science and engineering for 37 years. The last 32 years of that was at Texas A&M University. And I've also been a consultant to major national and international corporations and government agencies, including classified work. I have used the knowledge and experience that I have in analyzing election data beginning with the 2020 election since at bottom voting machines are computers. and election data is math. So math and computers are my specialties and that's what I have done with data from Arizona elections both in 2020 and 2022 to the follow up directly with what uh, Ms. Bush has presented. They took the proportion of signature mismatches in 2020 and said if the same proportion or percent of mismatches had occurred in 2022, how much would it be? 
So you take that percentage and then multiply it by the number of votes in 2022 and say how much it would it be. The next question is how sure are you of that number? How accurate is it? So when we talk about projections, and this is a projection using 2020 data to project to the proportion of mismatches in 2022, the way you assign a statistical limit is by putting bounds on it. So to use a familiar example, if you see a weather report that there's a hurricane 100 miles north of Bermuda that's headed straight for Miami, you know exactly where the hurricane is now. So you're 100% certain of its position. But you are only 95% sure of where it will be 24 hours from now. And so you always see on the weather map that it gets wider. So after one day, it'll be somewhere between here and here. After two days, it'll be somewhere between here and here. And after a week, it'll be somewhere between Florida and Maine. So we're adjusting the percentage by the bounds on the statistical limits. So what I did was to take the proportion of mismatch signatures in 2020 projected to 2022 that you've just heard presented in that report and then apply statistical limits. So I believe you have a copy of my declaration. This is the last page, Exhibit D, and I'm going to put up uh, on, as a slide a portion of that because the slide is too wide to fit on the projector screen. Okay, good. The uh, top level uh, of, of the graph, so there are two halves to this chart or spreadsheet. So the top half of the chart is the egregiously mismatched signatures. So this is where the voter registration card said John Smith and the signature said Susie Jones. Or there was a legible signature on one and a dashed line on the other. So a, ma a mismatch that they deemed or termed egregious is one that couldn't possibly match under any imaginable scenario. So that's the top half. The bottom half of the graph deals with the mismatched signatures which were deemed mismatched under the standards of the Secretary of State. And so that is uh, obviously a different standard. And so what you will see on the last page, in the middle of the page, you'll see that the egregious mismatch signatures had 0.0996 proportion, that is 9.96% mismatch, and the standard, Secretary of State standard mismatched was 12.7%. So nine, it's roughly 10% and 12%. Now if you project that to the 2022 election, which is the right half of the last page here, and that is the right half which is on the screen, you'll see in each of these halves, the top and the bottom half, a row of five numbers. So the top row, which is row three, I will attempt to highlight, and can't do it, okay. So uh, the first one is a 95% level. So with 95% probability, we can say that the projection to 2022 for the, this number of ballot envelopes 
should be between 187,000 and 191,000. The row below it is with a 99% probability. It says that it would be between 186,000 and 192,000. You'll notice that the bounds are getting wider. So you say, I'm 95% sure it's between here and here, and I'm 99% sure it's between here and here. And then again, the third line, 99.9, 99.99, 99.999, and I didn't see any point in going beyond that. So we've got to this level of certainty to say that the number, uh, again, the, t the top half is the egregiously mismatched signatures projected to 2022 would be at least 184,000 uh, of, of the 1.9 million ballot envelopes. Holy and if you also included the early votes, that's the green number on the right, 127,000. The bottom half is the same calculations done using the Secretary of State standards. So again, instead of roughly 10% being mismatched, there's 12.7% being mismatched. So under that scenario, the bottom line, 99.999% confidence that it's greater than 236,763 mismatched signatures on ballot envelopes and greater than 163,458 12% uh, of the total votes, vote? Uh, uh, signature mismatches for those. So with those projections, if you take the smallest of those four numbers, so we're saying look at them with two different levels of strictness as to what constitutes a mismatch. That's the top half and the bottom half. And then look at two categories, the ballot envelopes and the early votes. And then you take the lowest of all of those numbers. That's 127,186. Holy cow. The margin of victory in the governor's race just conducted in Maricopa County was 17,117 votes. So that means the projection for mismatched signatures in 2022 with 99.999% probability is that they were more than seven times the margin of victory mismatched signatures. I'm as mad so as that hell, is the calculation that I anymore. did to extend the information that has been presented by Ms. Bush. Dr. Doherty, question. Uh, were there other uh, types of failures in uh, Maricopa County in 2022 uh, besides the mismatched signatures? Yes, there were. And that is the remainder of my declaration. So what I've just described is the fourth part and the last page of Exhibit D. But if you will go to um, page three. Absolutely massive. Seven, like six to, to seven a, times a the total margin. Of how the ballot insertion errors attributed to a 19-inch image could have occurred. Okay, now we're talking about something different than signature verification. That's right. We're I'm talking about additional system failures, okay. errors, and inconsistencies. Okay, so the two issues this overall briefing uh, is about 
is number one, signature verification under the election mechanics rubric, and number two, the tabulation machines uh, concern. Go ahead. Correct. So um, the ballot tabulation uh, insertion errors, as has been described, if a voter filled out their ballot and inserted it and it was rejected by the tabulator, there are some legitimate reasons that can occur. Because, for example, the tabulator is programmed not to allow an overvote. So if you vote for two people for a race that only one person you can vote for, or if, let's say, for a city council, you could vote for up to two people and you voted for three, the tabulator catches it immediately and says, this is not valid. Do you want to correct it? And gives the voter a chance to review the ballot. So it, it, so that is a legitimate reason that a tabulator might reject a ballot. If a voter inadvertently uh, overvoted on a particular, uh, in a particular case, the voter then has a choice either to correct the ballot or to say, I want to cast it anyway. If they say, I want to cast it anyway, then what happens in the tabulator is that that one race is ignored. So if you voted for two people for governor, then that would be counted as an overvote and not as a vote for either one, but the rest of the ballot would be processed. If the voter chose to make the correction and erase one of the bubbles thoroughly uh, and then insert it, then it should be accepted. So that's a legitimate reason that a ballot could be ejected when it was inserted to the tabulator is that the tabulator detected an overvote. What would not be a legitimate reason would be a misprinted ballot. And that's the 19-inch ballot that is depicted on page three. So it's not obvious if you just glance at it that these two ballots are very different. So if you refer to that picture on page three, this is the back page of a good ballot at the top and an invalid ballot at the bottom. So if you just glance at it, they look very similar. But if you look closely, you will see that on the left and right ends of the top ballot, there's roughly a half inch margin. And on the left and right ends of the bottom ballot, there is a roughly a one inch margin. In other words, the size of the image at the top from the black marks on the left to the black marks on the right has been shrunk by 5% on the bottom image. Madam Chair, on this top, on this, on this uh, subject of the tabulation and the, the, you know, the image, the 19 inch image, but in, the, in, in that case, the, so the tabulator rejected it, but I believe what occurred, and I'm not a Maricopa County resident, so I'm thankfully, I mean, I didn't experience this, but what I, what I believe occurred is those ballots that were rejected by the tabulator then went into a separate box to be later tabulated uh, at their headquarters, right? So it's not, this is, this is an on-site failure, but not a, a miss, you know, a, an ultimately rejected vote. Is that correct? Uh, Madam Chair, Senator Cinderation, um, it was a rejection at the, of the tabulator at the voting center. However, it's an invalid ballot. It would also be rejected if it were put into a tabulator at central count because they have to have the same program. So this bottom ballot could not have been counted by 
any tabulator because the size doesn't match. So how did, so then what did occur, and, and actually this raises another question, is have we, a lot of serious allegations being raised here, have, have, you, uh, have you all reached out to Maricopa County to ask uh, what their processes were with, with all of these various actions? Uh, Ms. Bush, you can approach the mic and uh, answer if you feel more qualified. Madam, Madam Chair and Senator, those ballots would then be sent to central tabulation where we would presume that they were duplicated onto a readable ballot and then inserted into the system. Is there a way to know that did get done? There would be no way for us as voters to confirm that that occurred and when we're dealing with the magnitude we are, that is the level of concern. Madam Chair. Go ahead. Vice Chair. I'll have a bill in a few days that I think will help to address <laughs> that situation well, we've discussed. But fine, uh, but uh, it, the, the, what is germane is what occurred in the past. So to, for you to answer me, I'm hearing you say, and answering my colleague, we don't know. Is that correct? Madam Chair, that is correct. So we don't know if a 19-inch ballot which got rejected innumerable times ever got counted. What about the proverbial drawer three uh, that we all heard about? Explain that to me. So there were two polling centers, four tabulators all together that uh, had the commingling Don't issue go away, of the Doc. drawer three. I want to get out of the video. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's fine. So there were tabulators that were identified as having problems, and when those problems occurred, those ballots were placed in a drawer three. There were a few scenarios of concern with that, and uh, I would like to go back to the presentation and show you those graphs. And okay, is uh, Dr. Doherty done? I, I don't know. Okay, as long as you two can work that out. Go ahead. Absolutely. Let me. I guess while you're uh, uh, adjusting there, um, my question is um, what caused so many ballots to be rejected uh, by the tabulators as unscannable? If you refer to the picture there on page three, the outline of the ballot is a series of black boxes. So there are black boxes on three of the four corners, large black boxes, and the fourth corner is blank. So if you'll notice, the looking only at the top ballot, on the left-hand side, there is a top left and a bottom left big black box. And on the right, there is a blank and a bottom big black box. And the purpose of the blank is that the ballot can be inserted either direction, either right side up or upside down. And so this tells the scanner which side of the ballot is up. It's the side with the two black boxes is the top of the ballot. Then in between those marks, forming a kind of frame around the ballot is a sequence of very small black boxes. And these small black boxes are timing synchronization marks that identify the row and column for a particular bubble. So when you have a bubble for a race and the scanner reads it, it can't read the, the text beside that bubble. All it can tell is what row and column that bubble is on. And then it looks in the ballot definition file to say what candidate's bubble is at that row and column. So 
The corner marks are important to determine top and bottom of the ballot, and the side marks are important to determine the alignment of where the bubble is and which candidate or measure uh, that that should be counted for. Senator Bennett. Madam Chair, Mr. Doherty, my recollection of the explanations given by Maricopa County for the reason that so many ballots were unreadable by the tabulators is that the printers were set incorrectly and that they were too lightly printed, for lack of a better term. Yeah, would you and the agree paper that, was also a problem. Um, the tabulation also chain of custody, can no chain set, of custody. Thank you, Lori Q. Um, so that if a ballot is printed too lightly, Well, what the Fugazi over? Still nothing, huh? Hmm. What is going on? Who broke my shit? What is happening? The timing marks are too small as they are in the case of the as they are in the case of the bottom ballot or if you will turn the page to the next picture on page 5 you'll notice a blotchy printing. So the blotchy printing here would occur when the printer was not set for a high enough fuser temperature. So basically, there's a setting on the printer that says how thick is the material you're going to print. Because if you're printing on 20 pound bond paper, or you're printing an envelope, or you're printing a ballot, which the manufacturer says has to be 80 pound or 100 pound paper, then you need a higher temperature setting on the fuser in order to basically melt the little dots of toner in, into the paper. And if the temperature isn't high enough, then they don't stick and they basically flake off. And that's what gives you this blotchy appearance that you can see in the top bar. The settings on those printers, obviously, since the manufacturer says that the ballot paper has to be 80 or 100 pound paper, should have been set on heavy. So I don't remember the exact words, but it's basically light, medium, and heavy is what kind of document are you wanting to print on. They should have been set on heavy. A number of the printers were not. And so that was one of the remedies that the technicians uh, tried, in some cases successfully, in some cases not, uh, at the various voting centers. So yes, the printers should have been set for heavy media, they were not always set that way. And when they were not, the blotchy printing meant that those timing marks weren't perfectly black. And so if the computer software saw any white specks in that black box, it says, this is not a good timing mark. It's not a valid ballot. 
ejected. Madam Chair. Senator Bennett. Um, it's my recollection that in response to those situations, the county said that these ballots were taken to central count where the machines were set up to accept a lighter print or a blotchier. Um, and that, would you agree that the central count machines or other types of machines different than the ones in the voting centers uh, can be set to accept a lighter print? No, Senator, uh, Madam Chair and Senator Bennett, uh, no, I would not agree with that statement because the same ballot definition uh, file has to be used. So the central count did not say it's okay to have a 19-inch image. Okay. It, it did well, not. I'm not talking that. about the size of the image. I'm talking about the darkness of the print. Um, during the six years I was Secretary of State, um, it was always described to me, and maybe this was in layman terms because I'm not a uh, computer specialist or whatever, but it was always described to me that when ballots are laid out, uh, as you noted with the timing marks, um, the system is designed to basically say that so many inches down and so many inches in, or in this case, it's probably more likely stated, but if I come down 13 timing marks and go in five timing marks, if I find so many pixels of blackness there, I record a vote for Smith. If I come down 19 timing marks and in five, that's a vote for Garcia. Um, but it was always described to me that those systems also had a, an element of how many pixels of blackness they see in that area. Some people fill in the oval and it's black almost to the bleeding through on the other side. Other people <laughs> don't. And so I've, I've always been under the understanding from the descriptions given by manufacturers or proprietors of election management software and systems that um, there's an aspect to pixels of blackness in whatever area the machine is looking for. Is that different from your understanding that it either finds a fully black mark and accepts it as a vote or anything less than 100% black it doesn't because it's been my understanding that you know some people get the whole oval marked and some people don't but they get enough of it marked that it accepts a vote in that area uh, madam chair and senator bennett now i understand the the point of your question and th we're talking about two different types of marks so the timing marks around the border have to be a hundred percent black they cannot be blotchy there is no adjustment to say if it's 50 percent black counted as a timing mark because then it can't be sure where the bubble is. Okay. So the timing marks have to be 100% black. They have to be the, the full size. They can't be short or narrow. They can't be shrunk. They have to be the perfect size and they have to be perfectly black, the timing marks. The bubbles where the voter fills in, now there is a configuration setting for the threshold of blackness to count it as a vote or not. Because what will happen, as you well know from your long experiences 
uh, Secretary of State and participating in, in many other uh, election-related activities is that some voters will put their pin down on one dot and then say, oh, no, I want to vote for the other person. Right. Yeah. And so there'll be a big black dot for the second candidate and a small black dot for the first candidate. The standard configuration for these tabulators is between 14 and 35 percent. So if it's less than 14 percent blacked in bubble, it says that's a stray mark, just ignore it. If it's more than 35 percent filled in, then it says that's the person that they intended to vote for or the yes or no on the, the water bond proposition or okay. whatever. So the timing marks have to be perfectly black or it can't be scanned. But, the, that are, the, but there is a range in the bubble areas. In the bubble area, there is a, a range. it's a programmable thing Absolutely. as to when to count a mark and when not to. And what typically happens, uh, this is a technical term in election processing, adjudication. So adjudication has a common meaning of something was officially decided, that uh, it was adjudicated right. that this person won the 100-meter race or, or whatever. But in election terms, adjudication means that the voter's intent has been determined. So when the tabulator scans a ballot and it sees one bubble that's less than 14% blacked in and the other candidate is more than 35% blacked in, it says, I am sure of this voter's intent, count one vote for the second candidate. Right. If it sees two bubbles that are 50% filled in, the machine says, I don't know who they voted for or if this is an overvote, and asks for a human to review it. And then the human- Or in Arizona, we have two humans. They have to be from different parties. Exactly, we'll manually adjudicate. So you have the, the automatic adjudication for the unambiguous cases right. where the voter's intent is clear. And in the case of bubbles, the standard setting on these tabulators is 14 and, and 35 percent. That can be adjusted, and this is probably what uh, you were uh, told about uh, scanning on a different scanner. Dr. Doherty, question pursuant to this uh, exchange. I'm hearing you say the timing marks have to be sufficiently black, but they also have to be in the right position, correct? They have to be the right size the right position and perfectly black. Otherwise, the software says this could be a Xerox ballot. It doesn't look like a valid ballot and that's why it will reject it. We will not process any further. It will produce an error message. I think I gave one of those error messages in, quoted one of the error messages. And while you're looking, so irrespective of what uh, computer down at central wherever vis-a-vis -vis one out in a outlying location they're calibrated the same correct correct to that point go ahead yeah. is the percentage that determines whether it's stray versus a potential vote does that who's is that in election law is that in election rule book or is that up to each recorder to decide uh, madam chair senator Kavanaugh my understanding is that this is the vendor's recommended settings. Uh, so do I continue? Vendor recommended, so is it the recorder that determines what they want to use or? Uh, Madam Chair, Senator Kavanaugh, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that question. 
Mr. Chair? Yes. Senator Kavanaugh, um, in Arizona, the 15 counties have chosen to use one of three vendors. Um, Maricopa County uses Dominion. Yavapai County uses Unison. And the other 13 counties use ES&S. But the, um, the settings or the ranges of the 14 and the 35 uh, is is unique to no i mean one vendor may have 14 to 35 another one might have 15 to 40 or I, mean, I think those can be varied um so it's vendor's choice so it's it's vendor specific as to what they say their specifications are uh and then the counties get to choose which one of i think there's about seven approved vendors nationwide and arizona uses three of them okay but to clarify this whole back and forth we're talking timing marks and the reason that the ballot gets rejected and we sort of thank you for your expertise senator bennett but we got off on uh, the validity of the bubble or not and that's not really germane to what we're talking about so let's stay on track if we may um, i'll be clear there's nowhere in state law that or the election procedures manual that specifies the 15 or 35 percent numbers uh, we specify that the counties can only use equipment that's been certified at the federal through the federal level and, and through a similar state level uh, but otherwise it's the the vendors prerogative to design their system to be a little bit different than somebody else's system okay Madam Chair. let's stay on track go ahead uh, if you look on page four back up one page uh, in paragraph 13 here are some error messages that occur when either the image was shrunk to 19 inches or the heat setting was too low and there was blotchy printing. So here are the, the, uh, the four error messages. Left edge marker number 39 not found. So it's scanning down the left edge and the first 38 markers were the right size and the right blackness, but the 39th one wasn't. And at that point it says, this is a bad ballot. Next message, determine vertical edge markers failed. If one of those marks is wrong, the whole ballot is wrong. Third mayor message, ballot misread. So that says, this is not a good ballot. And finally, ballot returned to a voter since the ballot is unscannable. Madam Chair? Yes. Uh, so these problems aside, if a ballot is rejected by the machine, it will ultimately go to human reviewers to be adjudicated and then counted, right? So I, I'm, no. I'm kind of failing to see the should import. Be, should, yeah, it should, should be, be, but it should then. And you should then be able to, tr you know, if you, if you as a voter experienced this problem with the tabulator rejecting your ballot, you can go online yourself at Arizona.vote and check that your vote counted. So, uh, you know, these, these machine, these machine issues are, are are perhaps embarrassing for the for the um, you know the the fact that they occurred and I'm sure will they will be addressed. Will you shut the fuck up, you uh, fucking moron? Quickly. But I, I you know it does seem to be that you know when we talk about the number of rejected ballots and we know that they have to be placed in a separate a separate tray a separate bin to for later later you know tabulation or human adjudication, it is verifiable. It's it's. It's a little bit speculative to, to leave it there and say, well, we don't know whatever happened to those votes. Go ahead and comment, please. Sure. Madam Chair, Senator, 
In regards to even what Senator Bennett had stated, the EAC helps to determine which equipment should be used and why it should be used and to set those standards. I think we can all agree on that. So the issue we're having is more than just a few malfunctions. And but, so what I'm going to walk you through. Stand by. Mm -hmm. Address, if you would, her question, though. Is there a trackable, verifiable way to know if the vote eventually got counted? Sure. Madam Chair, Senator, no, there is not. A ballot has no identifiable information on it, and there is absolutely zero way for them to indicate when a ballot is not tabulated on site that that ballot is associated with the voter. They check in at a poll, and it indicates that there is a poll book check-in, but until that ballot is actually ran through a tabulator, there's no way to identify the voter to the ballot, and there's no way for a voter to have 100% confidence that their actual ballot counted. To that point, Sylvia, did I hear you say until the ballot is run through a tabulator, there's no way to identify the voter to that ballot? Is that what you just said? A ballot has no identifying information on it. So all we right. know is that but a voter that checked in. Madam Chair, but after that you said until a ballot is run through a tabulator, there's no way to identify a specific ballot to a specific voter. I, I don't think you used the word specific, but you indicated to identify a, a ballot to a voter. Is that Madam Chair, Senator, I may have misspoken how I said that, but let's just use the scenario of 20 voters check in at a polling location. Right. We know those 20 voters checked in, but until those 20 ballots are actually counted, we do not know that all 20 voters' ballots oh, okay. counted. Correct, but we don't know which of the 20 necessarily went which with each voter. Um, is that correct? That is correct. The ballots are anonymous. There is no identifying markers, and there's really no way to tell whether your vote counted. Unless you go well, online and look at the website was my colleague's well, question. But, no, no. but to your point, if 20 people checked in at a polling location, voting center, whatever you want to call them, and that produced 20 ballots that were counted in the system, the system attributes those 20 votes to those 20 people. You don't know which vote for which person, per se, but the system uses that type of correlation, I guess, to say that these 20 people signed in, there were 20 ballots processed, and so we will record on the voting history where you can go to the Secretary of State's office and see if your ballot was counted. Um, it would be a yes for those 20 people. But to that point. Uh, Madam, Madam Chair, Senator, if I could, if I could address that, um, we have analyzed the CVR files, the poll books, and the slog files, which is the system log files, which is part of what we're going to go over very briefly. And there is always a discrepancy between the poll books and the number of ballots counted for various reasons. The county has even well documented and indicated that a poll book check-in does not necessarily mean a ballot cast. We had uh, one of my very close friends and somebody who works in our organization, her husband went in, checked in at the poll book, cast a ballot, but then later the county notified him that his ballot was not showing as tabulated. So with all due respect, 
the, the, the numbers, the math is not always that clean to have 20 check-ins, 20 ballots, 20 tabulations. So there's always a, a significant or small portion of, of um, imperfectness that occurs in our elections that will not allow for that kind of perfect balancing. Just to, to, to that, that point, point. Well, 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 yeah. so a person went there and because of this printer problem, the ballot didn't go through and they were told, put it in door number three and they didn't want to do that and instead they said, I'll go to a different polling place. And they went to the different polling place. And when they went there and tried to check in, they were told that you already voted at the first polling place. Then they would have walked away not being able to vote. And I assume there's no record of how many people were in that situation. Madam Chair, Senator Kavanaugh, you're absolutely correct. And that, that was to my point. A um, poll book check-in is how we determine or log that somebody voted. But it doesn't always mean that somebody voted. It's really just that very first step of we're allowing you to vote and we're going to issue you a ballot. Okay, let's uh, get back on track. Um, I got a uh, text from someone out in uh, LD7 land who says they cannot hear us unless we speak right into the mic. So colleagues, especially my marine friend over here, we need to speak right into the mic. I'm so timid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess my question to either one of you subject matter experts is uh, how widespread across the county was this phenomenon? Madam Chair, I'd like to show you a, just a couple of brief slides oh, to okay. put that in perspective. Thank you. So this first slide here is more just exemplary. Like it's an example of what I'm about to show you. Okay, there are two blue dots on this graph, each representing a different tabulator. There are typically two tabulators in a polling center. So in this scenario, they're connected by a line because they're in the same polling center. So we have tabulator A and tabulator B. The blue dot size is going to tell us how many errors occurred on that tabulator how many ballot misfeeds occurred on that tabulator. The left axis will show you the percentage of errors and the bottom horizontal axis is going to represent the polling centers. So in this scenario, you have one polling center and you have two tabulators. Tabulator A had a misfeed amount of approximately 2,000. Tabulator B, which is the smaller dot above, is the second tabulator within that polling center, and they had a misread amount of maybe 50 to 100. So if you look at this graph, this represents Maricopa County's 223 polling centers in a perfectly compliant EAC world. EAC standards allow for an error rate of 0 .002, or one in 500 misfeeds. That is the EAC standard published in the EAC manuals. The size of the dot and the number of ballots is still represented here. That red line you see horizontally at the bottom, that is the line of what would be considered Election Assistance Commission compliant. And this is representative of what we would call an imperfect but good election. 
this looks great, right? So we've got just a couple of tabulators that are stepping out of key, one of them at about 16% error rate and one at six, both of them easily rectified, replaced, or maybe just put out of commission. So this is an imperfect but normal election. This is notional. This is not actual, correct? That is correct, Madam Chair. The next slide I'm about to show you is taking the slog files. Which are the what system, again? The system log files. These are the files that the tabulators generate that tell you each result of a read. And when so did you get that information? That was provided to us approximately two weeks ago to analyze that along with the unredacted, or I'm sorry, the redacted cast vote records or and CVR that, records. And that's what Senator President Fan requested? These particular items, the uh, system log files and the cast vote records were actually obtained through a public records request. Okay, and before you go to the next slide, what, what is a cast vote record? Cast vote record is the, the system file that's produced by the machine. It essentially breaks down every single ballot by what race it voted for. It's a very long spreadsheet that says, we tabulated the first ballot, so tabulation one, and it resulted in this race ahead, this race, this race, and it's, it's just broken down. So it's, it's essentially the report of the election results that come out of the tabulators. Per, per ballot. It's broken down. Every single ballot is assigned a tabulation sequence number, and it shows every single ballot and every single race tabulated from that ballot, every single overvote and undervote. But not the private information of the voter. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the county even redacted the uh, tabulation numbers off of that, so there would be no way that uh, super geek analytic data people could find a way to marry those back together. Okay, so just real quick. I represent four counties that aren't Maricopa County, and I've had my constituents say, hey, Senator, help us get the cast vote records, please, from uh, whatever county they want, and they're still struggling to get that. But I'm to understand this was obtained for Maricopa County? Madam Chair, yes, this was received from Maricopa County as a redacted version, and we have both the um, redacted pre recount CVR files and the post recount CVR files. The cast vote record has always historically been public records information. I think it's only recently with all of the questions of elections that counties are becoming more protective of releasing that data. Uh, so this, what you're gonna show us is, is 2022 data? This is 2022 data, Okay, that is correct. So this next slide is the actual Maricopa County elections. So what you will see here is every single tabulator in 230, 223 polling centers. Each one of those lines at the bottom represent the name of that polling center, and each of the dots above represent the tabulator. As you can see, not one of the 446 tabulators in Maricopa County were EAC compliant. Every single one of them fail in an error rate much, much higher. Some at average 235 times the Election Assistance Corporation federal regulation. And you can see some tabulators up above failed at a rate as high as 95%, yet they continued to be commissioned and used. When you have a 95% failure rate, 
why are we feeding 5,000 ballots into a tabulator with that high of a malfunction? Madam President, uh, Madam Chair, mm -hmm. and for that matter, to that point, why is the taxpayers paying for this? Madam Chair, Senator Borelli, I think that's a great question. Proceed. So the colors on this chart are representative of something, too. Interestingly enough, the county made a decision to zero out all tabulations at particular polling centers on Election Day and take all of those ballots back to central count to be retabulated. There were 44 of them, to be exact. Why would they do that? Madam Chair, I have no idea. I do understand, and I will show you in the next slide, why some of them were done, but the majority of them um, actually do not seem to have any scientific, mathematical reason for doing so. What impact does that have? The impact is the ballots then become sort of commingled as they go to central count, and you have major large tabulators there at Central Count that will then be fed the ballots from these 44 stations, nullifying any results in the CVR record of tabulations for those 44 centers, which again lends to my point and Senator Bennett's point of the poll books matching the CVR and the cast vote records and knowing those votes counted. When you zero out a tabulator and take those ballots elsewhere, you're increasing probability of errors, mistakes, or ballots potentially not being read at all. To, to so, the, uh, stand by. So, what you're saying is, in those 44 uh, polling locations where the tabul—I'm just trying to understand this—where the tabulator machines got zeroed out, those ballots which ostensibly would have been counted before the zeroing out then would go be transported and either counted again or not counted? Explain that to me. Madam Chair, yes. So any ballots from a zeroed out tabulator, such as I will show you. Let, let's go to that scenario before okay. I change to the graph. There were two polling centers where the county admitted that the box three ballots accidentally commingled in with the tabulated ballots. That would be a prime example of a reason why we would have to zero that tabulator, count the number of ballots present, and retabulate everything, because it would be the only way the county could be sure that every one of those ballots got counted, because once they're commingled, we don't know whether they were counted or not counted. But that was four tabulators in two polling centers that the county had admitted publicly the reason for the other 42 polling centers is still unknown. To that point? Yeah. So, Madam Chair, so you've got them all grouped on one side of your table. Did you purposely do that because they were retabulated or, I mean, or, or is that alphabetical and by weird chance it got that way or are these based on the location of the polling places? Sure. As Madam Chair and Senator, this was intentional to show that there doesn't seem to be any scientific or statistical rationale to choose those 42 polling centers. So we grouped them together so you could see 
the difference in, in the error and misfeed rates between the magenta and the blue or the, the zeroed out and the non-zeroed out. Now, as you can tell, there really isn't, right? Visually, when we look at the data, uh, it doesn't make sense to us because we, we don't know why the county made that decision. So when I move to the next graph, this might make a little more sense. The next graph is actually alphabetized by polling center. So you'll see the blue and the magenta mixed in. The ones you see with the stars are the ones that the county identified as the ones that had printer errors, right? We, we look at these misfeeds and we say it was mostly due to printer errors, ballots too small, ink not properly adhering to the ballot, and this seems to be the common thread. But when you look at this final graph here, you will see there are many with high tabulation error rates or misfeed rates that were not identified as the county as having a printer issue. So they were either misidentified as not having a printer issue, and they actually did, or our reasons were bigger than just a printer issue. The yellow dots you see represent the four tabulators and two polling centers where the county admitted the commingling of the ballots. Those were the legitimate ballots to be recounted. And the concerning thing about recounting those other 42 is when you look at the cast vote record, those polling centers actually show up as zero. And so all of the ballots from those 42 polling centers are then mixed into the grouping of central count MTEC tabulators. So we won't be able to marry those, the number of ballots from each polling center back to the number of poll book check-ins. Another question if I could, uh, Madam Chair. You showed two slides. One was a hypothetical okay election with a little screw up, you know, a little typical government leeway we give. Uh, what if you, could you have taken these results and compared the same results for the 2020 election to see, I mean, w was this level of screw up also in the 2020 election or is this something unique to 2022? Which I think is like the really interesting question. Madam Chair, Senator Kavanaugh, that was going to be one of my asks. If we had the data to analyze previous elections, it would be my recommendation that we absolutely do that so that we can determine whether this was a isolated event or something we've yeah. been dealing and with. And Madam Chair, and I would suggest maybe a preliminary step would be to, there's 44 of them, maybe randomly select 10 and see what's going on there. And if all is normal, then you're probably okay. But if those 10 show similar patterns, then that's a real problem. Are those cast vote records for 2020 available? We, we absolutely have access to the 2020 cast vote records. We would need access to the system log files, which I would have to check with the county to see if they're available to us. Okay. So the final thing I want to point out above all is number one, not one of the tabulators fell within the federally regulated EAC standard. And number two, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason as to which tabulator they used and which tabulators they zeroed. There were a total overall feed 
of 464,926 ballots collectively into these tabulators. Now that is not individual voters, so I wanna be clear. Some voters attempted multiple times. So this is feats we're talking about, not voters. But out of 464,926 feats, 217,305 failed, which means we had nearly a 50% ballot read failure rate. On what segment of time? The entire day of election, election. for the 2022 midterms. Uh, Senator Kavanaugh. Thank you, Madam Chair. So this is Maricopa County. Yeah. So this is all Dominion machines? Madam Chair, Senator Kavanaugh, that is correct. This, we have only done this analyzation okay. in Maricopa County at this point. We are working to gather the data yeah. for other counties. Uh, yeah, and that's my second point. I, I'd be really interested to see what the error rates are for other counties with different machines. Well, I voted in Coconino County in 18 minutes, and my <laughs> ballot went in and got, oh, no, I dropped it in a box. Never mind. <laughs> We're a little rudimentary up there. Okay. So before we open a question, just in conclusion, I would like to ask this body today to really take this situation seriously and ask yourselves if we as citizens, at least the citizens of Maricopa County, can afford to continue using equipment with a 235 times the federal standard of failure rate, and whether or not that in any way will instill or build confidence into an already broken election system. I have uh, all of the exhibits that were provided to you today, along with a copy of the presentation on this website that I have posted. If anybody needs to reference it or would like to share it with your colleagues, um, and if you have any questions for myself or our data analytics team, I'll be happy to answer those. And I want to thank you so much for this opportunity. I have two questions. Dr. Doherty, do you have anything to add? Uh, yes, Madam Chair. The cast vote records uh, are an important check. They're not the only check. And I believe one senator said he was from Yavapai County. I believe that county has still not uh, responded to public records request for the cast vote record there, so you might want to follow up on that with, uh, uh, with your county. Um, the other point that I think is uh, relevant to make is that these ballot uh, insertion errors where the ballot was rejected, uh, as was pointed out, it might have been four times per ballot since there are four ways you can put the ballot in, front, back, top, top, bottom. But even dividing the number by four, it's still far in excess of the federal standard that say there should be no more than one out of 500 misfeeds and we're seeing one out of five when it's 20%. So that's 100 times. And some of them were even worse than that. Um, the other thing that I would mention is that the problems of the insertion errors were a large and continuous problem all during election day. So it has been reported that this was a small minor problem at just a few voting centers and it was quickly remedied by having the technicians adjust the printer settings. 
the system log files show a very different picture. What the system log files show when we added them up in 30-minute intervals, that in 30, every 30 minutes across the county from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., there were at least 7,000 ballot insertion errors. Sometimes it was over 8,000. And so if you're plotting it, it starts at zero at 5 a.m., comes up to 7,000 at, uh, let's Seven see. What, let me see what Six page that graph is on so I don't have to uh, wave my hands and draw it. Uh, this is on page nine. So if you look at the graph on page nine, what it shows that is across the county, there were over 7,000 ballot insertion failures in almost every single 30-minute period for the entirety of election day, starting at 7 a.m. and continuing to 8 p.m., with a smaller number of failures prior to 7 a.m. and after 8 p.m. This was thus an enormous and continuous problem which did not get better overall during election day, despite numerous technicians making adjustments throughout the day. To the point question, uh, since some of these errors are, are due to somebody putting the ballot in the wrong way, and you would assume that, well, yeah. Uh, excuse me, okay. no, sir. It will accept it in insert it any direction. Okay. So in, in any but way. But if it's a 19-inch ballot, okay. it won't accept right, it so, in any direction. But okay. you might try four times hoping it would. Okay. So this, this, these errors can't be explained by the person putting the ballot in the wrong way. Correct. Uh, okay, that makes it even more serious. Yes. Then. So the, the, the scanner actually has two read heads to read the front and the back, but by looking at the position of which corner is blank, it can tell which is top and which is bottom and which is front and which is back. Madam Chair, so top and bottom either way, is it the same in terms uh, of so both either, either side and either direction will all work? That's, that's correct. Okay. So the software will flip the image before it looks for the XY coordinates of the bubble. Okay. okay. Uh, one more question, Ms. Bush, if you'd step forward. Uh, you had, uh, thank you, doctor. Thank you so much. Uh, very helpful. Uh, Ms. Bush, would you, you spoke to your concerns vis-a-vis -vis the tabulator machines overarchingly to us, the Senate. I would like your expert uh, sort of overarching input um, with regard to the signature verification piece. Yes, Madam Chair. So in conclusion, what we have determined is that the signature verification process in itself and how it's been built is a complete systemic failure. And that continuing to utilize this process with no immediate legislative intervention leaves our entire election system highly vulnerable to fraud and additional problems. Understood. Okay, um, we're going to adjourn. Th yes. No, uh, recess, I mean. Okay, give me a break. Uh, Senator Mendez, go ahead. Thank you. Madam Chair, Mrs. Bush, were any of the issues presented today brought up to any of the counties, and did they have a chance to respond? Sure. Madam Chair, Senator Mendez, yes. I have, over the course of the last couple years, made multiple attempts to share my concerns with county workers in the elections department and with leadership in the county. I understand that we are in a climate that is of heightened sense and people are on high alert and protective, 
but communications with our counties as um, citizens concerned about election integrity has been highly diminished and nearly impossible. Well, but then did the county respond? They did not respond. Are, we're supposed to stop those people from talking, right? Madam Chair. To that point, was this specific presentation presented prior to today to Maricopa County? Uh, Madam Chair, Senator Bennett, uh, to answer that, no, it has not. I would be happy to give that presentation sure if like they're willing to listen. Yeah, I just, okay. What did you answer? How did you answer yes to my question and then no to his question? He asked uh, if come, the particular the presentation has been provided. You, you asked if I've contacted the county to provide information of our findings. That's two different questions. Sir. I asked if this presentation was. No worries. Madam Chair, uh, Mrs. Bush, may I ask about this group, We the People? Is, 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 this is new to me, I, so I, I have no uh, background for this group. Uh, so to justify you know, why you're standing in front of us, I mean, is, when was this group created? Does this group have any kind of like political affiliation? <laughs> Do they realize Madam how Chair, fucking stupid Senator they are? Our group oh is a public God. oversight and transparency organization. We consider ourselves nonpartisan as we have pointed out flaws in both the systems and in our political elected on both the Republican and the Democrat side. We actually formed as an official organization in December of 2020, but we have been actively working in investigation, data analytics, and other areas since 2014. We have a qualified and trained team of investigators from law enforcement backgrounds all the way to data analytic teams and people that are highly skilled in computer sciences and data analyzation. And we've been doing this work for about 10 years at a level of citizen oversight. Madam Chair, Mrs. Bush, so, so you're not like a registered lobbyist or anything like that? Madam Chair, no. Senator Mendez, no, we are not a lobbying organization. Madam Chair and Mrs. Bush, so do you, beyond this endeavor, were you politically involved before? Like, did you run for office or? Madam Chair, Senator Mendez, you mean myself personally? Yeah. I have never ran for a public office. I do serve in my current political party, and that is completely separate and aside from this organization and my work here. Thank you. Madam Chair, I have a question. Go ahead. Um, Ms. Bush, um, so with your organization, are you, are you registered to vote in an armed partisan manner the way that- All right, you know what? I'm done with these fucking idiots. If you want to watch that, go ahead. I ain't fucking giving them any time. If you're if you're gonna give these freaking dummy crats time to, to ask stupid questions and try to impugn the integrity of somebody who's trying to bring us the truth, you can get the fuck off my channel. How's that sound? <laughs> I've had enough. The presentation is done. It once again lays out absolute and complete total proof. That our election system is a freaking joke. <clears throat> and our election system, our last two elections in uh, Arizona specifically, are a complete and total joke. So what happens next? Well, what happens next is Carrie Lake's appeal is going to hit with this additional information. And uh, you're going to find something very interesting stuff happening here. Very soon coming out of Arizona. I've been trying to um, wait until, I think it's, uh, we got a next... Uh, very little time left before you start to see Arizona start really moving in the information uh, overload. And that's why you're starting to see um, 
A lot of distractions happen out there because this stuff is going to come to a head very soon. So I'm keeping a close eye on it for you guys. We'll continue to, to uh, get as much information out there as we can on this front. I also have... I drop in the chat at the very beginning, uh, the lone raccoon out there. That's uh, part of the data, data analytics team that she is referencing there. And that's why I've been bringing you guys all of the great work that he and everyone else has been doing behind the scenes with these CVRs and the rest. They're, they're doing great work in Colorado, all around the country um, with these CVRs and, you know, getting this data prepped for these kind of presentations. Lone raccoon has, uh, four different forensic reports, as well as the Mesa, Colorado vote analysis, and as well as um, several other things out there that he's got on his um, uh, Telegram today. So check check that out when you guys get time, and they, uh, that'll be that. Um, let me see here. Uh, the, the Tina Peters lawsuit is um, also in Mesa County, and that whole thing is going to be coming to a head here very soon. So you're going to start seeing Colorado back in the news on this front as well. So I'm keeping a close, close eye on both of those things, guys. And um, I hope everybody else is out there as well. If, if they haven't been, please have them help spread the word on that front. Um, I did not anticipate that going for as long as it did. I still have a two-hour show ready for you guys. Um, I'm not going to – I'm going to cut it all back, and we'll, I'll dial it back, obviously. Um, but let's just get to the important stuff that I got here today, and then I'll let you guys go as fast as possible. So give me – if you can, hang out with me for about 45 more minutes, and I'll try to get through all this uh, done as fast as possible. Uh, all the lurkers out there lurking and listening, much love to you all. Twitch crowd has been on fire. Much love to see you guys. Much love. Great to see all of you guys out there today. Thanks for hanging out with me as well. Um, Bezhig and um, Tick Tick Boom, new followers over there on Twitch. Thanks, guys. Much love. Uh, Rumble Crowd, you guys have been on fire all day today, too, until I until I just went off on that clown. You, I ain't watching the rest of that crap. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm great. To, it's great to see y'all, you guys all out there on Rumble. I appreciate everyone very much. Beachside's in the house with a $5 Rumble rant. I've never seen a worm wear a mask ever, ever before. Do they realize how freaking moronic they look, dude? I, I, and do they realize that it is absolutely pointless? Probably not. They probably are just as stupid as you imagine them out to be, and it's amazing that they get elected. Anyways, um, for, uh, the world's full of mask holes, and they're trying to bring it all back. You know what I'm saying? All right, let me get to... Um, oh, I think I got... Uh, I got to get to my pilled back up. I can't play videos. I don't know if you saw some of the glitching in there. Um, it was when I was trying to drop the links into um, into the foxhole, and every time I pull up the foxhole on my computer, it glitches out any video that I'm playing. So, as all out there on Rumble, I appreciate Shush you, everyone, very much. Um, so I got, I got to pull you guys back up over here. On the fox, well, I got you over here on my on the side, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's <sighs> lots going on here. Okay, Karen Hare, thank you. Uh, Rise attire, uh, dropping a phone on me. I mean, thank you very much. I appreciate you, bro. Yeah, I hear you, man. I appreciate that, man. I, that that means a lot coming from you, bro. I appreciate that. Classical chick, Liberty Bells, and Judy the Ladypug with the most recent gold pills that I can see. Um, stop trying to autoplay. Thank you very much. Let me uh, let me go back over to my iPad here, and um, let me look at the other gold pills I missed. I just want to thank you all very much for the gold pill love today. I appreciate you all. Daisy Chains, Karen Hare again, uh, Atlas with a bunch of cookies out there. Thank you very much. Who cares news, as well as Liberty Bells and 
J-Bell dropping a ship on me as well as Average Joe. Thank you guys for the gold pill love. Karen here, thank you as much, very much as well. Thank you guys. All right. Um, so did you guys have a chance to watch um, the Diamond and Silk presentation yesterday, uh, funeral this weekend? Um, I, I didn't, uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I've, uh, <laughs> I don't need any more depressing stuff in my life. So I kind of decided to, to kind of step aside from that for now. Let me fix my screen here. Hold on. Let me get my cam up. Uh, let's see. There we go. All right. Um, so here is uh, a minute and a half from Diamond and Silk. I'm gonna try to get through all of this stuff as fast as I can. Um, but <clears throat> just want to get through a quick discussion here on the vaccine stuff. And I realized uh, that people are probably sick and tired of talking about it. I have not covered it very much because I knew that uh, everyone else was going to be covering it a lot. Um, but I think, you know, I'm going to try to fit a little more in as the news just becomes undeniable. And I think you guys all know what I'm talking about as far as the news becoming undeniable with regards to these vaccines. It's going to be kind of scary, I think, um, going into this. I hope I hope it's just not as bad as, as it could be. As soon as Diamond hung up the phone, she said to me, I can't breathe. It was suddenly out of nowhere and no warning. I got her to the kitchen table, opened up the back door so that she can get some air. And each breath was less and less and less until her eyes became a stare. My husband and I followed the 911 instructions uh, 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 from the lady. We laid her, like they told us to lay her flat. They said do CPR and it was one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. My husband and I alternated and kept going and going and going until the emergency truck came in, came into the, the yard and the EMS came into the house. They did everything that they could. But what I wanna say to everybody is don't you dare call me a conspiracy theorist because I saw it happen. I saw how it happened. I was there when it happened and it happened suddenly. I want America to wake up and pay attention. Something ain't right. It's time to investigate what's really going on here and get some answers to why are people falling dead suddenly. Well, you're right. <clears throat> it is that time. And I just, um, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that, um, like I said, it's just, let's just hope and pray that it's not, it's not going to be as bad as it could be. Um, if you search, if you do a search, and in fact, if you're out there right now, if you want to do your own search, you're welcome to died suddenly, put a plus in between it died plus suddenly on your, whatever you want to search. I'll do it on my telegram because I have it linked um, to kind of my, my sourcing, right? So it, it limits, it takes out a lot of the bullshit. <clears throat> no, it doesn't mean that it's limited. If you go back to the beginning of this year, there are 
dozens of examples of died suddenly. Conservative radio host dies suddenly. Former Purdue and NFL player dies suddenly on the 2nd of January. Former NFL player Yurik Nawari dies suddenly on the 3rd. 17-year-old basketball player dies suddenly on the 3rd. On the 4th, former Olympian dies suddenly at 49. Sudden cardiac arrest and death in athletes, 2.4 per month. Special ops officer dies suddenly on the 5th of January. Heartbreak as teen dies suddenly on the 5th of January. Um, three officers died suddenly on the 5th of January. 16-year-old student died suddenly on the 17th, 7th of January. Mother of an NBA champion died suddenly at home on the 9th of January. Soccer star died suddenly after su- suffering sudden heart attack on the 9th of January. Mother of an NBA champion died suddenly on the 9th. Got that one. So, uh, let's see. Zach on the 10th of January does a special on died suddenly. 18-year-old on the 10th of January dies suddenly. 21-year-old man at Air Force Cadet on the 10th dies suddenly. Um, Jeff Beck dies uh, of a heart attack suddenly at uh, 78. Um, Colorado College tennis player, 20, dies suddenly on, dies suddenly on the tw- 12th. The 13th rugby player dies, 70 at eight, uh, dies suddenly at 18. Viral TikTok star on the 15th dies of a suspected heart attack, dies suddenly. Former American Idol contestant dies suddenly. Going in through this week, a woman with no history of heart attack issues dies suddenly on Tuesday. Middle school physical education teacher on Tuesday dies suddenly. Award-winning chef dies suddenly at 48 on Wednesday. Fox News executives die suddenly at 47 on Saturday. Foreign minister dies suddenly after suffering a heart attack on Saturday. Saturday also um, silk demanding answers on Sunday. Young husband on Sunday dies suddenly in his sleep. Uh, 35-year-old middle school teacher collapses in front of his class, dies suddenly on Sunday. What is going on is definitely the question. Definitely the question. And I don't, I don't think any of us really, really, really knows. But Scott Adams, who used to follow me and then unfollowed Completely. me for trying to explain to him that this shit is not safe and you should look at the alternative research, put himself into a little bubble and stopped listening to people like me. Two minutes of Scott having to eat crow. Having... Uh... Having said as clearly as possible that the anti-vax people seem to be the winners, I want you to hear that clearly. The anti-vax people appear to be the winners. The anti-vaxxers clearly are the winners at this point, and I think it'll probably stay that way. And, And I don't want to put any shade on that whatsoever. They came out the best. They, they have the winning position. The unvaccinated have a current advantage. Because they, they feel better. The, the thing they're not worrying about is what I have to worry about, which is, I wonder if that vaccination five years from now... Because really, the anti-vaxxers, I think, were really just distrustful of big companies and big government. That's never wrong. It's- no. The anti-vaxxers did research into the experimental vaccine and looked at alternative studies from all around the world to find data to back up our position. It's never wrong to distrust government. It's never wrong to distrust big companies. 
So if you just took the position, let's just distrust everything the government did, well, you won. You won. (laughs) You won completely. I did not end up in the right place. Agree? You would all agree with that, right? I did not end up in the right place. The right place would be natural immunity, no, no vaccination. You should take victory, and I should take defeat. We can agree on that, right? That, that my position is now the weakest, and, and your position has gone from the weakest to the strongest, and that we can just say that's true. The people who didn't get vaxxed are absolutely in the winning position. You win. You win. You are the winners. You are the winners. All right, let me say that part with no ambiguity. You won. You won. Well, Scott. Uh, all, all of my fancy analytics got me to a bad place. All of your heuristics, don't trust these guys, it's obvious, totally worked. It has nothing to do with just a simple statement, I don't trust these guys, although there is plenty of reason for that. What it has to do with, Scott, is again, people who question the narrative outside of the box of what's being presented to them actually did some research on stuff, found a lot of interesting information that proved that, uh, man, this experimental vaccine, you all, please stay away from it. And we don't just take stances on things because we have feelings. That's things libtards do. Moderna begins administering new MNRA shot that is injected directly into the heart. So we got that going for us now. Excellent. Yes, let's let's continue. Let's let's have let's, let's just go right into the heart with it. That's a great idea. New mRNA, just shoot that right into the heart. Just turn that thing into a black heart right off the bat. That way you don't have to really go through life and, you know, become a a globalist to be have to have a black heart. Uh, Biden to name Jeff Zietz, um, the new, uh, uh, <laughs> the, you can't make this shit up, dude. The, the timing of the chief of staff resigning and now this with the Biden documents and all that crap, you guys know who this guy is? He steered President Joe Biden's response to the COVID-19 pandemic to this first during his first year of the administration. And he's nothing more than an Obama puppet. So <clears throat> now you know who's really running the country. Shadow government is for real. That is for sure. All right, guys. I appreciate you guys all out there. If you can't hang out with me for a little bit longer, as fast as is, and I'll try to get through all of this as fast as possible. Uh, California mass shooter ID'd as 70 year old, 72 year old who can tran. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So j- just out of nowhere, this guy decides to shoot up uh, 10 people in a ballroom dance, huh? Interesting. Uh, just a real quick couple things on this one. Uh, the area of Monterey park is also known as the Chinese Beverly Hills. 
um, interesting article in the Wayback Machine. Uh, search the Chinese Beverly Hills if you if you want that. If you want these articles, check out my social media later on. Also, it was the start of the Chinese Lunar New Year. How long does the Chinese? How long is the Chinese Lunar New Year? Sixteen days. What is the 2023 zodiac sign? Uh, of course, it's the rabbit. Of course, it's the rabbit. I'm going down the rabbit hole. Oh, crap. Um, listen, check this out. I was listening to Sword of Michael. Uh, check him out when you guys get time. I was listening to him last night, hanging out with him. NF Layers. Check out that song. That is a freaking great tune, and shout out to Sword of Michael for finding that awesome uh, thing out there. That is pretty cool. Uh, General Flynn is over my left shoulder, and the, uh, the right one is John McNaughton's. Um, can't really see that very good, can you? Uh, John McNaughton's You Are Not Forgotten with uh, President Trump. Look up uh, John McNaughton's You Are Not Forgotten. That's that's the one that's on my over here. All right. Swing and a miss on the mute button. Let's keep going. Going cashless. Norway's digital currency project raises privacy concerns. Uh, you think Norwegian CBDC uh, is... Um, yeah, so all of this stuff is happening now, all all through Europe, and it's finally getting atten the attention that it needs. So that's the good news of it. We'll see what happens with it. Peru closes famed Machu Picchu ruins. Tourists trapped as anti-government unrest is spreading throughout Peru. I don't know if you guys have seen, but there is... Uh, it appears as if Peru is on fire. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Machu Picchu, but... I'm sure all the Luciferian Satanists out there are familiar with Machu Picchu. The foundation of the worship of the sun god and human sacrifice began in Machu Picchu. 417 visitors were stuck at the stuck there amid riots over the weekend. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it not? Chinese Lunar New Year. Visitors stuck at Machu Picchu where the beginning of all this human sacrifice um, stuff started on well i don't know if it really started on i think that's probably you can go back to the incas uh and look at the the uh that's probably the foundation of the worship of sun god as far as i'm aware maybe there is some you know historical hieroglyphics or something other than that that i'm not aware of there probably is a swiss hacker stumbled upon the fbi's no fly list what they found is disturbing seems as if the federal government uh, good name suffers more damage each week these days that continues with the actions of a hacker in Switzerland being only the latest below law enforcement's stellar reputation for security. A security researcher po posted a blog entry showing how she allegedly hacked an unsecure server and was able to gain access to the U.S. government's terrorist screening database and its controversial no-fly list, which contains the names of hundreds of thousands of people 
suspected of ties to terrorism or other legal activities. The server was apparently under U.S. National Airline Commute Air and her hacking letter to government files. Um, the list uh, that she found had, had over 1.5 million names on it, along with a list of aliases under which they may travel. The names that the federal government tagged as banned from U.S. travel, the Daily Dot reported. On the list were several notable figures, including recently freed Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, alongside 16 potential aliases for him, said the Daily Dot. Uh, the list has a huge number of people with Arab and Middle Eastern sounding names, as well as suspected members of the Irish paramilitary force, the IRA, and other terrorists. Uh, one individual was eight years old, according to a corresponding date of birth associated with the name. It's just crazy to me how big that terrorism screening database is, and yet there is still very clear trends towards almost exclusively Arabic and Russian-sounding names throughout the million entries, said uh, Crime Watch. TSA released a statement merely saying that it's aware of the cybersecurity incident. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll drop that on my social media after the show. I found that to be an interesting one today. SDA-layered network of military satellites known as Proliferated War Fighter Space Architecture just the real news putting this out there has renamed it to the proliferated warfare warfighter space architecture if you guys remember i showed you what the future constellation and low earth orbit um satellite systems are going to be they're saying it ain't going to be around till 2026 and um but they've already renamed it the PWSA, so something tells me Space Force is on fire. Just going to say that. Um, Israel Prime Minister removes top minister over a court ruling. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu had to remove his, um, uh, let's see, uh, it was with a heavy heart, with great sorrow, and with this, this uh, extremely difficult feeling that I am forced to transfer you from your position as a minister in the government. Netanyahu, Netanyahu told Dury during a cabinet meeting, Leader of the ultra-Orthodox ultra uh, Jewish party, Shaz Derry, was uh, appointed health and interior minister last month as part of a coalition dealing with Israel's November 1st elections. Hmm. And, you know, there was this whole targeting of Netanyahu that got him removed, and we don't know how much of all that is real or not. There was just a, bit, a bunch of spin-doctored, you know, stuff going on out there. It was hard to tell what was the truth and what was not with the disinformation war. He's now back in power. Now that guy has, has been removed. found that to be interesting. Um, Space Development Agency Awards. Oh, this is to go with um, the satellite uh, stuff. I was going to do a little dig on that again for you guys uh, and show you um, some interesting stuff on that whole thing. I don't know if you guys have have been here but have been listening for the past few years. You're well aware of what the uh, the future of our missile defense technology is, and it would not surprise me if it's already been implemented. Uh, El Paso man sentenced to more than 13 years in prison for child exploitation conviction. This also coming to us from Just the Real News today out of El Paso, Texas. Uh, Javier Alejandro Parada, 36 years old, used, to, used a social media account to share nearly 35 files containing child exploitation material in a group chat between December 31st and June January 2nd. So... I don't know, you know, maybe there's more movement on uh, group chats on social media to finally get a hold on that. I don't know. I just found that to be interesting. Uh, I hear a report that Ron Pelosi died. I don't know if that's true or not yet. Um, it, I was unable to uh, verify uh, earlier today. I was searching all over the place. There is no public discussion of this yet, but I heard a rumor. I heard a rumor. 
Uh, many have, have seen Deripaska's back in the news, Oleg Deripaska, and today coming to us from the Justice Department, uh, as alleged, Charles Magano, former high-level FBI official, and Sergei Shestakov, a court reporter, violated U.S. sanctions by, by agreeing to provide services to Oleg Deripaska, a sanctioned Russian oligarch. They both previously worked uh, with Deripaska to attempt uh, to have his sanctions removed and public servants, so forth and so on. This... Um, this office will continue to prosecute those who violate U.S. sanctions enacted in response to Russian belligerents in Ukraine and those who line their own pockets. I don't know, man. There's a lot of people that are that that's, that see Oleg Deripaska in the news and think that this could lead to more Durham stuff. You know, the, the U.S. sanctions on Russia is a giant freaking joke right now. And the Justice Department is also a giant freaking joke right now. So I don't know, man. I think people are overplaying this a little bit, to be honest. We shall see. I still only see Durham's work in the cover-up, but maybe we'll find more on that. I don't know. Um, Forensic News has an awesome summary of this as well with regards to the money trail, um, how this all ties to the Bank of Cyprus, and, of course, um, British Virgin Islands, the same old, same old. Um, I have a really good deep dig on this whole thing. I'll just go ahead and give it to you guys out there. If anybody wants to take this and do their own presentation on it, you're welcome to. Um, but I just uh, caution everyone, everyone jumping to conclusions on this Oleg Deripaska news today. We'll see. We shall see. It's Garland's Justice Department. <sighs> Anyways, um, also, here's a business insider. The first person I see to talk about this uh, on anywhere was uh, Ms. Donna, another great source in election integrity and the rest. Um, she did. A, she found this article from Business Insider talking about uh, former top FBI official involved in Trump-Russia investigation under scrutiny by federal prosecutors. This was dropped on September 15th, 2022. So... Again, um, this, the slow news cycle and how they are trying to drip, drip, drip this stuff and just kind of not have it overwhelm people to realize how bad things are and how truly fucked we are uh, has been interesting to watch. I just want to check in real quick on to see if there's anything breaking out there. Um, all kinds of shootings out there um, that have been happening pretty much every single day. Um, what happens when bad news is about to break for them? You, know, you guys all really know. Um, there's probably more coming on this Arizona election integrity and other stuff as well. We'll see. I'm keeping a close eye on it, guys. Um, another uh, shooting today in California. So, um, you know, they're going to go after, they're, they're going to continue to go after that front on all of this as well. All right, guys, that's pretty much all I see out there for today. Again, I caution everybody to not overlook this Oleg Deripaska thing. There are all kinds of threads already being written that are spin doctoring it beyond where you even believe that it needs to go. Um, it's Garland's Department of Justice, and it's for sank- current sanctions that are that aren't having any effect on on anything. So I don't know. You know, is the Justice Department completely spinning their press releases now too? That wouldn't surprise me either, I suppose. But anyways. Uh, appreciate you all very much. Um, thanks for hanging out with me here today. I appreciate it. And thank you all for the gold pill love today. You guys have been absolutely amazing. We've been uh, a little bit of overtime here today. Uh, 
Bubble Sup and the Crystal Jane, Daisy Chains, Karen Hair, Rise Attire, Classical Chick, Liberty Bells, Judy the Lady Pug, and many others out there. J Bell, my bro Joe, a bunch of others. I missed a bunch of you, but my thing's all messed up now. Thank you all for the gold pill love today. I appreciate you all. We'll be, back, we'll be back here tomorrow again, 5 Eastern, 4 Central, for another edition of Uncensored Day. Rumble Crowd, you guys have been on fire today. Thank you all very much. Please do me a favor on your way out. Hit the plus button, thumbs up button. I appreciate that. Twitch, you want me to try to raid someone? Let's see. Who, anyone out there? Here, go say hi to Shook. Don't leave yet. Go say hi to Shook. Oh, I can't. Never mind. And with that, I want to say much love. God bless you all. Oh, uh, one more thing. Biden lawyer has a history of finding, uh, releasing elusive documents. Bob Bauer. Do a quick search on uh, Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer. There's some interesting dig there. That was another one I was going to do for you guys today. All right, guys. See you guys tomorrow. I'll be lurking, listening. And if you guys missed Saturday night with uh, J-Bell and the Fallen One, you guys missed a, um, a lot of fun and a cool show and a lot of good feedback on it. Thanks, guys. See you guys later. Much love. Treat the word impossible as nothing more than motivation. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider. Embrace that label. Being an outsider is fine. Embrace the label because it's the outsiders who change the world and who make a real and lasting difference.